Let's pray together this morning. Father, we um, just are so grateful seeing those pictures and uh, just the last couple of days of seeing um, just the beauty around us is um, kind of kind of just left me awestruck this week and uh, and actually seeing Venus and Mars together and the moon that was pretty cool so father we are calling you as the creator spirit that the same spirit that hovered over the land and hovers over the water that you do things that that no human skill can can copy and father that gives us a mind and a heart to rejoice and so, Father, we're asking this morning that uh, we don't let us walk through this beautiful world with unseen eyes. Don't let us come in contact with the uh, remarkable people around us with unseen eyes and listen to them with unhearing ears. <clears throat> Father, don't let us give in to the lure of other things that will steal our heart and steal our joy, that we cling to what is beautiful and good and true. Father, help us not to lose sight over just how, how wonderful and awesome you are just because we work in a low roof of a shop or an office. Father, keep us. Don't let us become dull and grouchy when your creation sings in the morning. And so, Father, we let the energy of your spirit, <clears throat> we ask that you let you let the energy of your spirit and your wisdom infuse us just as it infuses all the life around us. And the place where your will is done, we pray, pray that that will also infect our hearts. And we ask that you give us the grace to use these beautiful things and beautiful places and the awe around us to rise up so that our souls will go from creation to creator, from nature to nature's God. We ask that your tenderness, that your tenderness come through that narrow love that we are able to express and that you give us a gentle and kind heart towards all things, all people. We ask that you keep our minds and the welfare, in our minds the welfare of others, the welfare of people around the world from Indonesia and Malaysia and Morocco to Latin America to our own country and our own home. That you keep in our minds the welfare of the, of the children, of sick and the poor and that we remember that what we do and what we say and what we think about the least of these are what we do and we think and we say about you. So, Father, we're asking that you direct our hearts to you this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Let us know you more deeply and love you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our series on, on uh, hope this morning. Um, last week we talked a, bit, a little bit about the past and how the past um, kind of in, can, in hinder, can hinder our hope and maybe even rob us of hope. Um, and the past kind of has these inner voices. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning and probably next week uh, also, the inner voices that from our past that just kind of plague us and keep us and rob us from that hope. 
Um, I don't know, there are some movies that, uh, that stay with me for a long time. Uh, I don't know about you. Sometimes it's because of the message they bring. Sometimes because they're incredibly entertaining. Uh, sometimes because of some impact that they've made on me. But uh, one, of those, one of those movies that I just have a vivid memory about is a movie from the early 1980s. Uh, some of you may be even be too young to have even seen this. Uh, called War Games, uh, a, a movie with Matthew Broderick. And if you don't know the, the gist of that story, the gist of that movie, basically there was this, this drill of, uh, of, of nuclear attack. And what they realized was that the, a lot of the controllers of the, of the missiles and the nuclear weapons and everything, they, were, they froze up. They could not bring themselves to turn the key and launch the missiles. And so they came up with the idea. They said, we needed to, to run everything by computer and take the human element out of it, this, this human uh, waffling back and forth out of it. And so they created this monster computer, uh, the WOPR called the Whopper, War Operations Plan Result or Plan Response, I think is what it's called. And that was supposed to take care of everything. While all this is going on, in the meanwhile, there's a student in Seattle, a high school student who is brilliant, but he's also lazy. Uh, he's also bored in school. And uh, he is just absolutely brilliant. He, and he, he's able to hack into his school's computer to change his grades. Well, to change his grades is one motive. To impress his girlfriend is the other motive. And uh, so he gets in the computer and changes his grades. And he finds this, this game online called War Games. And he goes, I bet I can hack into that and uh, play the game. And sure enough, he does. And so he picks, there's this list of games. And so he picks Thermonuclear War. And he takes, I believe he takes the, the, the side of, of the, the Soviet Union at the time. And so he starts playing this game. And he starts mobilizing his nuclear subs and arranging the missiles and aiming the missiles at the right and arming them and getting them ready and stuff. But the problem is he didn't, uh, didn't uh, hack into some game, some video game. He hacked into the Pentagon. He hacked into Whopper. And so what he starts doing is actually mobilizing and aiming and adjusting Soviet missiles, or what it looks like. And the Americans in the Pentagon are sent into a panic. And they say, this is not a drill. This is really going on. And so the dominoes start to fall. They start to mobilize. They start to, to get in on all this. And, and it gets, becomes this crisis. They finally locate him, and they're convinced that he's, he's in collusion with some spy or something. And, it's, of course, there's lots of tension to the whole movie. But at the end of the movie, we're saved, okay? Uh, I won't tell you how it ends or how it goes, but basically it ends, and the computer realizes and shuts down and... We can all take a deep breath thanks to this. But what was interesting is the computer's solution. Uh, the computer saw this time is thinking it's a game. And he says, and the computer comes on and says, the winner is none. There are no winners. And then he concludes, or the, I think it's a woman's voice actually, concludes with this. Thermonuclear war is a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. Pretty good advice for a lot of things, I think. Uh, I, I think about life, and I think about how many things that go on in our life that's also, yeah, it's probably pretty good that we don't play the game. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of voices this morning, maybe this morning, maybe might hold off till, till next week. It uh, depends on how long I talk. Uh, but but we, will, we will get through at least one. But there's these voices that I think that are better left if we just didn't play. 
that it's a strange game and the only winning move is not to play. And one of those voices is the voice of shame. And that comes out of our past and it and affects all of us. And I think it's just shame is a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. It's a strange game. Now, we're going to talk about the, the, the inner voice of shame. We're going to look at three questions. What is shame? What does it do to us? And what can we do about it? And I hopefully able to recover some of the hope that it takes from us in the future. Uh, what, is, what is shame? It is, it is not thermonuclear war, okay? I'm not saying that it's like thermonuclear war, but I am saying it is a heart disease, and it does kill people, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but it does kill people. And, uh, a heart, and shame is not the same as guilt. Uh, shame says you are unacceptable, you tell yourself, I, I am unacceptable. I don't, I don't deserve this. Uh, guilt means that, yeah, I did wrong. I messed up. Uh, and guilt says I can make amends maybe or I can confess it or I can get forgiveness. But basically, and maybe even guilt expects, expects punishment. But shame is, is different. Shame says I don't belong. Something inside of me, don't, I don't belong. I am not normal. Something makes me stick out. And if everything you knew about me, then not only would I stick out, you would kick me out. Or you would at least reject me somehow. Uh, it, is, it is just says that I do not measure up. That other people are acceptable, but I am not. Other people are good, but I am bad. Other people are important, but I'm disposable. And we have all these voices telling us this. And these voices sometimes are in our heads, sometimes there's other people. And we just assume that, hey, God is joining right in with the chorus. And he's telling me that I am unacceptable. And so our response to shame is pretty much all the same. Our response to shame is to hide. We want to hide it. We want to cover it up. We don't want to admit it. We want to deny it. And almost always what happens is that we then find someone else to shame because it makes us feel better. If I can find someone that's worse than me, then I'm a little bit better. And that's why there are no winners in this game called shame. There are no winners in this. It is a strange game where the only winning move is not to play at all. But we do. It is a major theme in the Bible. It's, we've, it's woven throughout the whole scriptures. It begins with Adam and Eve. And what do they say when they first rebel against God? I got to find something to cover my nakedness. I'm ashamed. And it starts from there and it goes all the way through. Uh, just one story after another. And there are two very important stories to me in the gospel about these inner voices. One is the story that Ruth just read about the restoration of Peter and this conversation with Jesus and Peter, which we may get to today, tonight, or this morning rather, and may have to wait till tomorrow. But the other story is the Samaritan woman who came in, in the afternoon in the heat of the day because she didn't want to come in the morning when all the women would come to the well because she was ashamed of her sex life. 
And so she comes in the middle of the day, still trying to cover her nakedness. And we who live with shame are continually trying to cover our nakedness. We are still doing what Adam and Eve wanted to do. We are not worthy. I, I um, learned a new word about a month ago, just reading a column, and I had to look it up. And it was, of course, it was one of those words in the Urban Dictionary. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have to look it up in the Urban Dictionary. It's called frust. And frust is a combination of frustration and dust. And what that is is that line of dust when you're sweeping the floor and you're trying to get everything in the dustpan, but it always leaves that line of dust in front of the dustpan. That's frust, evidently, okay? Well, that's what shame is. We think we're going to try to get it in the dustpan, but there's always that line of dust that's that frust right there that just bugs us and we cannot get rid of. So what do we do? We sweep it under the rug. And that's exactly what we do with shame. Shame is the perfect uh, metaphorical uh, answer to frust. It stays there. We cannot get rid of it. So what does it do to us? It takes us to unhealthy extremes. It takes us to do things that we would not normally do. It is insane. We are, no long, we are so lonely when we try to hide our secrets. We are no lonelier than when we, our secrets are trying to, we try to hide our secrets. We have con it convinces us that we don't deserve to be loved, that we don't deserve to be accepted, that the, somehow the only love I'm getting is the love that I deserve, and I don't deserve any more than that. My, my mom lived her whole life. She grew up in a, at a good Southern Baptist church in Prosper, Texas, and, and married the son of a Methodist preacher. And, but she lived her whole life afraid of dying and always afraid of what people were saying about her and about her family. And I have no idea what she had to be ashamed of. I have no clue what that was. But that's the way she lived. And she was always afraid to die. And when she got ill, near the end of her life, my sister was there in Austin with her, and, uh, and God gave her a vision, a vision of homecoming, of peace. And it was a dream. And I really believe this was God working in her life. And it was homecoming to her and my grandmother, her mother-in-law, my, my dad's mother, was there to receive her. Now, my grandmother was a saint. She lived with Big Daddy, <laughs> my grandfather, who I love, by the way, but he was, he was a force to be reckoned with. But Mama Moon received her, and Jesus received her. And she shared that with my sister and told her, I'm not afraid to die anymore. And the next day she was gone. I believe that was God working. But that's how we live. We think that we do not deserve this, and so we sabotage things that are valuable to us. And it's, it's just insane. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. For some reason, shame convinces us that we deserve to be changed to that for the rest of our life, that we don't deserve to be free from shame. We just don't deserve it. And one of the best stories about all this is the story of the prophet Hosea. It's a wonderful story. A lot of you probably know the story of Hosea. It's a, it's a prophet that God called, and God called Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now, in my opinion, that name was just another strike against her, <laughs> but that's her name, Gomer. So he goes and he marries Gomer, 
And then over time, he falls in love with her. But halfway through the book, or two-thirds of the way of the book, she decides to go back to turning tricks. And he's brokenhearted. And God tells him, you go and woo her back. And so he does. This is supposed to be a whole picture of God's relationship with Israel. And I would broaden that and say God's relationship with humankind. That he woos us to marry us. And we come to him. And then we go back to turning tricks. Because that's what we know. And that's what we're comfortable with. We don't deserve any better. It's okay. She, I believe Gomer went back to get used and abused and to be a disposable property because that's what she was used to and that's what she thought she deserved. And shame has that way of doing it to us and we know we want to get rid of it, but we can't. And it's just an insane game that we play. But remember, the only winning move is to not to play it. But we just can't help ourselves. It binds us to that in chain, and it blinds us to the love and forgiveness of God. Shame is a strange game. The only winning move is not to play it. So what do we do about it? Well, I don't think it's the past events that cause shame. I don't think it's those things that cause the shame. I think it's the lies we believe about them that cause the shame. The shame is something that maybe we have done. Maybe it's something that has been done to us, and we are ashamed of it. But it's the lie that we believe about it that imprisons us, that tells us that we are undeserving, that we can only accept the love that we deserve. It puts this stamps on us, uh, not just with the memories, but with the lies that they, ha they take, they tell us. And those lies are really hard to shake off. We cannot seem to shake them off, and they are crippling. But it's not just the memory. I believe it's the lie they tell. And this, this can be any kind of event whatsoever. It can be abuse of some kind, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, that makes us ashamed. Uh, it could be some tragedy that we came, that we have a part of, that maybe it was no fault of our own, but for somehow we were involved in it and it makes us ashamed. Maybe it's an adulterous affair. Maybe uh, it's a divorce that you feel like has given you shame or rape or sexual assault or, or something foolish you've done or foolish you've said and you cannot shake it and it's that, that thing that just holds on to us. And we go back like Gomer and we go back because we're used to being used and abused because that's comfortable, that we're used to being a throwaway piece of object because that's what makes us comfortable. I think the person we need to learn from is not Gomer, but another woman, the Samaritan woman. And most of us know that story. It's a famous story of the woman who comes to the well, not in the morning when, the, when women usually go to the well to draw water, but in the afternoon in the heat of the day, and Jesus is there, and the disciples are off buying food somewhere at the market. And, of course, she's there with her water pots and begins talking with Jesus. And Jesus reveals her secrets. He says, go tell your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. She goes, yeah, you're right. I know. I know. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband either. I know. And she has this moment 
of realizing that what she's looking for to quench her thirst is not that. And Jesus gives her the living water, the famous living water. And then she, John makes it a point. I love John. I love the gospel of John. Uh, I, I just think every word is important for John. And he mentions that she leaves the water bottle and goes into town to tell the crowd. And I think that's very important that she leaves the water bottle, the water pot. To me, I've always taken that as a metaphor of her leaving her shame behind, of her leaving her, whatever she's using to try to quench that thirst, she leaves it behind, she leaves it with Jesus, and she runs off. This woman who avoids the crowd in the morning then goes and finds a crowd. This woman who's trying to avoid attention in the morning is now become the center of attention in her town. And she comes back. And I just think that's who we can live for. That's who we can learn for. That, that this, this no secrets, this allows grace and love to sink in. And I think that's what we need to do to deal with this shame is to allow that grace and love to sink in below the level of our shame and heal it. How do we do that? When I say grace, I'm not talking about some namby-pamby idea that whatever goes is okay with me kind of thing. It's not that, that God just thinks whatever's happened is okay, whatever you think is okay, that every idea is a good idea. There are some ideas that are very bad ideas. That's not what I'm talking about, grace. So what can we do about it? First of all, we must understand that grace is a divine commitment. It is a divine commitment. And what I mean by that is God commits himself to love you. He has taken a vow to do that. It is a commitment that he makes. It's not a, it's not a transaction. It's not a transaction that if you say this prayer or do this thing, then you receive grace from God. It is, it is God committing himself to love you regardless of your action or your behavior. It's a commitment that he makes. It's not a, a doctrinal statement that we argue over. I mean, that, that, was the, that was the whole point of the Reformation, was this argument over uh, work salvation or grace salvation by faith. Martin Luther said it was all by faith, and it became this big fight over grace and works. And even today, we still fight over it. And in my tradition, it was like, okay, yeah, we're saved by grace, but you have to have works to prove you're saved by grace, or you have to have works to make sure you don't lose it. Or uh, then back in the 80s, I remember there was this debate over grace and lordship salvation. And, uh, and some, one side would say, well, you, had to, you have to accept Jesus not just as your Savior, but he has to be Lord of your life. And the other side says, well, do you know anybody whose life is completely under the lordship of Jesus? Uh, how much is, is enough? 98%? 80%, 51% maybe, I don't know. So it's not this idea that we argue over. It is just God's commitment to love you no matter what. God's commitment to love you regardless of your behavior. Understand that. We must understand that the real culprit is insecurity. We may think that that's sin that's keeping us to be the people we want to be or that it's shame that's keeping us down, that's just stunning our growth. But I would argue that all that really kind of comes from insecurity, that we're not totally secure that God loves us or at least it doesn't feel like it or we don't really know it. And I think it's insecurity. 
And I, I am baffled, <laughs> I am really baffled these days about how much stuff is out there, and I'm talking to men now, how much stuff is out there telling us how to be real men. I mean, everything from, I mean, it, it runs the gamut from this guy, this Andrew Tate, who's now indicted for rape, I think, and then there's Mark Driscoll and, and Jordan Peterson. All these guys are out there telling us how to be real men. I mean, how insecure are we, guys? That's what I really wonder. It's insecurity that I think is really getting at us, that is really causing us to stumble here and live with shame, that we're not secure enough. For some reason, we just, I think that is just stunting us. We must understand that salvation is not accepting God. Salvation is knowing that God has accepted you. That's what salvation is. If you are living in fear of the wrath of God, then I'm going to say that I don't think you're going to be able to trust the love of God. I'm not saying that wrath of God doesn't exist. But I am saying that if we're living in constant fear of the wrath, then we're not going to trust his love. And I try to, try to make that, that connection with my own father. If I lived, fortunately I didn't, but if I lived under the constant fear of the wrath of my dad, I don't know if I could ever trust him to love me. If that all my motivation was that I was going to get, you know, that tree full of switches out in the back. That's what salvation is. It's knowing that God has accepted you. And that brings salvation. And then finally, leave your water jar behind. Let it go. Leave it behind. Don't pick it back up. Now, I'm, I'm sure that, that the Samaritan woman had her ups and downs. You know, I, I'm sure she probably, the, maybe the next day, she thought, was this real? Did I really experience that? I'm sure we had ups and downs. But basically, she left it behind. And I know we will do that, but at least it's a first step. A first step of saying, I'm leaving my water jar here with Jesus. And I'm not going to play the game anymore. It is a foolish game. There are no winners in this game. Last week, I, I raised the question, you know, does, uh, do, um, do we love things that have value or do things get value because we love them? And I think probably both is true there. I think there are things that are very valuable that we love, and there is a love for that. But I also think that there is a love that creates value, that creates worthiness. And I believe that's the love that God has for us that he loves us, and because he loves us, it creates value and love. I brought a, a, um, a friend with me here, this, an object lesson uh, with me this morning. This is Doozer, and uh, Doozer was my daughter's favorite stuffed animal. It went with her everywhere she went. She just barely turned four when we moved to Central America, and she took Doozer with her wherever she went. It was what gave her security, what gave her kind of affection and, and some ties. And um, Doozer used to have really nice, smooth, full, full hair here, fur that was really all puffy and smooth and stuff. But um, she went to a, a preschool in San Jose, and I still remember her getting on the bus for the first time to go to preschool. She was the first one on the bus, 
And we, of course, her parents were here. We were just nervous wrecks the whole day. And Katie comes home and said, it's okay. The bus driver's name is Jesus. So, <laughs> so it was okay. But I, I remember there, at that school, there was an outbreak of lice. And uh, I still see Sue and Katie sitting on the step in front of the, in front of the, the street at the front of our house. And Sue with this comb, combing her hair, pulling out those lice, you know, one by one, one by one. Well, Doozer got lice too. And, and the only way to do that, to get rid of it, is to um, wash him and, and dry him with a lot of heat to kill all the lice that might be still in the fur. So we had to lunt down a laundromat in San Jose. We found one, threw him in the washing machine, put him in the dryer, and he came out like this. And he's even missing his nose here. Now, I could probably put that on my, my yard and put one of those cardboard signs that says free, and somebody might come by and pick him up. I don't know. But we're not allowed to do that. Katie won't let us. So Doozer lives in a tote in our garage. And this dog has value because she loves it. That's the only reason this stuffed animal has any value whatsoever. And I think that is what God has done for us, that we have value and we are worthy because God loves us. And that is a creative, incredible power to have, that that power of love can do that and make us worthy and give us value. There's a Catholic theologian named James Allison, and he defines faith as being relaxed. And I thought, you know, when it comes down to it, I can't think of a better definition than faith is to relax. And he says, think about it. He said, it's not a doctrine that we have to ascend to or a list of doctrinal statements. It's learning to relax. And he says, when you're with people who are fond of you, you're relaxed. You're funnier. You're more spontaneous. You're less defensive. And he says, that's what faith is for him with God, that I am relaxed, I'm funnier, I'm more spontaneous, I'm less defensive. And that's what he does with, with shame. He just takes it away so that we can be relaxed. And I think one of the reasons that woman left her jar there is that she was too relaxed to remember it. The shame had been taken away. And oh my gosh, do I have a lot of water, pot, water pots that I need to leave behind, that I need to let slip out of my hand and just leave it there with Jesus. Shame is a strange game. There are no winners. The only winning move is to not play. We're going to go ahead and pray. And uh, we'll pick up next week in the park. Um, please make it a point to come out to the park. I know this is a hassle that we have to be out of the building, but I really want to invite you to come and bring food, bring it to share, and, uh, and we'll talk about voice number two next week. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, and we are thankful for your love that gives us value. And, and uh, shoot, as, as Jenny choked up this morning talking about these people in our life. I choke up thinking about this too. And just thank you for bringing the people in our lives 
that, uh, that express your love to us. And we're thankful that it's so unconditional. In Jesus' name, amen.